This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the 2020 Ford Explorer. With available intelligent four-wheel drive and the terrain management system, it's built for life's adventures, which makes it the ideal vehicle for modern-day explorers like Mike Rooftop Escamilla. Hey, my name is Mike Escamilla. I am the world's most interesting dad. He's not kidding. Mike's Instagram feed, which captures his adventures with his young daughter Luna, has over 115,000 followers. Yeah, I get a lot of I get a lot of messages about about all the stuff I do with Luna, and I actually have other dad friends like, dude, I see your Instagram and it makes me feel like a bad dad. It probably helps that Mike is a professional stuntman and a pro BMX racer. But ask Luna why her dad is so interesting, and she'll say something else: road trips. The thing that's great about these road trips that me and Luna go on is they kind of go anywhere. Like we take helicopter rides and seaplane rides over San Francisco, driving on sand dunes. We have so much fun together. If your day job involves jumping out of burning buildings on a film set, you might think road tripping with your daughter is tame. But for Mike, it's all one big, incredible adventure. All these things that I get to do with my daughter that maybe when I'm doing them alone don't seem so extreme or that crazy, but with Luna and seeing her face, the way she lights up and so excited to get to do the things she's doing, rock climbing or snowboarding or helicopter rides or riding horses, there's nothing better than it. It's, I could have never imagined that I could be so excited about sometimes something that's so little. Whether adventure is your life's work or just a way to spend time with your kids, gear up with the greatest exploration vehicle of all time, the 2020 Ford Explorer been completely redesigned inside, outside, and under the hood. Learn more about what it can do and meet modern-day explorers like Mike Escamilla at OutsideOnline.com explorers. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Every winter, the Pacific Ocean produces giant swells that roll across the open sea and crash into the Hawaiian island of Oahu. For more than half a century, the surf world has gathered here, on the North Shore, where big waves descend on a stretch of legendary beaches that are collectively known as the Seven Mile Miracle. A lot of drama goes down between December and February. Often, the most talked-about moments take place during professional surfing's Triple Crown a series of contests that begins at Sunset Beach and concludes at Pipeline. These are among the most famous breaks in surfing for good reason. Incredible rides, incredible wipeouts, and every so often, a pretty gnarly rescue. For today's episode, producer Alex Ward brings us two stories from the latter category. One from a young lifeguard who was determined to prove his mettle on a big stage. The other from a North Shore veteran whose work to safeguard the lives of other surfers ended up saving his own. When Jeff Johnson was 16, he and a friend were on vacation in Hawaii, and they made a pact on the beach that they would move there from California after they graduated high school. So they worked through the next couple of summers, they saved up the money, and in 1987, arrived on Oahu Island. get off the plane, you get in the car, and you drive over the island. When you come over the middle of the island through this town called Wahiwa, you're in the sugarcane fields. 
and you can see the whole North Shore laid out in front of you, coming down into this this mecca, this playground, and this this almost this uh, war field or something. And uh, some you know, if there's waves, you can just see the reefs breaking way out there, you know, and and you get that kind of you get those butterflies and. Um, That's a really interesting analogy that you say it's like this playground, but also a war field. Like those are two totally different things. Yeah, totally. And I, I see it more as a playground because even when it gets big, it's still a playground if that's what you're into, you know. Um, but yeah, there can be moments where it can be like a war zone, you know. After moving to the North Shore, Jeff started taking pictures of the surfing scene. And now, almost 35 years later, he's an accomplished photographer, writer, and filmmaker. He became Patagonia's first staff photographer when he was hired to help launch the brand's surfing line. He's gone on to write books and direct acclaimed documentaries about climbing and surfing. But before all that, back in 1994, Jeff was just a young, unproven lifeguard on Oahu's North Shore. And it was his first winter season, working at the hallowed Sunset Beach. And he was eager to prove himself with a real rescue. And on the day that he finally got his chance, he was working alongside a legendary figure in Hawaiian surfing, a tough and intimidating Vietnam veteran named Roger Erickson. Well, I, I knew it was going to get pretty heavy because I'd been listening to the buoy reports. B- back then, we didn't really have surf reports. We just had uh, weather radios. And I would wake up, I would set my alarm for the 2 a.m. buoy because whatever happens at 2 a.m. will happen on the North Shore about you know eight hours later. The buoy reading, it was like, 18 feet, 25 seconds or something like that. So it was a really big swell that was coming. And I showed up the next morning early to set up the tower at Sunset Beach. And I knew I was working with Roger and I knew the waves were gonna get big. And it was one of those, early in the morning, it was one of those really easy inviting days at Sunset where there was a lot of guys out. The waves were pretty pretty mellow and pretty clean. And I just knew the shit was going to hit the fan because it, it does really quickly on the North Shore. You can see it go from head high surf to gigantic closing out surf within an hour or two. So things can happen really fast there. And, and I knew it would. So a day like this day is something that you're kind of excited about. When uh, Roger arrived at the tower, I told him, I go, hey, Roger, you know, the, the buoys really jumped last night. It's going to get big really quick. And then when we finally set up the tower and I sat in there with him, we just sat there not talking. He was just in one of his moods. Roger was kind of one of those guys. He was a moody, moody character and he was totally stoic, you know, bearded, um, bearded guy, kind of, you know, super strong, always fit, always working out. And um, I said, hey, um, can I get the first rescue today? And he didn't even look at me. He goes, you can have every damn rescue you want. And I go, okay. So, Jeff, you wrote an essay about all this for Outside a couple years ago. And uh, one of the things you touch on in it is this sort of tension between the new arrivals like you and the old locals that were already there. Uh, what was it like to drop into that? Well, the North Shore was was um, really the Wild West. It's it's uh, It changed a lot in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it's always been kind of an outlaw kind of on the fringes type lifestyle out there and in the 90s that sentiment was definitely still alive on the north shore i moved to the north shore in the spring of 1990 and 
you know, I was a total newbie just learning how to surf. And um, it really took me a long time to get used to the atmosphere there, not only the surf, but the locals and kind of the guys that were running the show at the time, you know. I felt I was jumping into the big ring there, you know. And when I first started lifeguarding, back then, you couldn't graduate training and go directly to the North Shore. It wasn't even an option. So you had to spend time um, paying your dues. So prior to this, prior to 1994, I had already done a year on the west side of Oahu and kind of paid my dues for a year out there. And then this was my first winter on the North Shore, my first winter season. You know, it was a tough neighborhood. The, you know, the local Hawaiians, you, ha you had to really watch your step and give them a lot of space and respect. And a guy like me from California, you know, a blonde kid in his early 20s, you're, you're kind of their worst nightmare, you know, like, so you really have to watch your step and keep quiet. And, you know, being a lifeguard in Hawaii and on the North Shore, you, you get the fill and the shoes of some of the greats, you know, and, and, uh, you get to share space with some of these guys that are working the tower with you. So you spend, you know, all day in the tower with these guys, you know, eight hours a day um, sitting really close to each other. Back then, the towers were really small. It only fit like a couple guys. Jeff was squeezed into the tower with his partner, Roger. And among the legendary North Shore lifeguards, Roger stood out. He was a tough character. And to a young guy like Jeff, very intimidating. Roger's one of those guys I always looked up to. He's kind of one of these, the original North Shore hard men. You know, he, he was a big wave rider all the way from the 60s up and through the 80s and um, still in the 90s. And, uh, you know, he's a Vietnam, a two-time Vietnam vet, and he survived the, the Tet Offensive, which uh, was just a bloody battle with not a lot of survivors. And he... You know, I think the first tour he did, he got drafted and it was during the, you know, kind of the hippie era, Summer of Love. And when he came back, things had changed. It's kind of one of, one of those classic stories where he came back and everybody's wearing flowers in their hair and dropping LSD and all this stuff. And he didn't quite fit in with the new scene. And he got into biker gangs. Um, there's a story of him getting into a big brawl where he... He actually went to jail for uh, leveling a cop. Um, totally stoic, you know, bearded guy, kind of, you know, super strong, always fit, always working out. And um, you never knew what kind of mood Roger would be in. Sometimes you'd sit in the tower with him for eight hours and he wouldn't even talk to you. So going back to the morning um, of the rescue, uh, you were in the tower with Roger that day. You know a big swell's coming. Uh, what did the water look like that day? Well, this day was uh, really clean waves, really nice weather, sunny. You know, the wind was offshore and the waves were about double overhead. So there's a lot of guys out there that were kind of just feeling their way out at sunset. They're kind of new, new to the game out there. Um, I did my first rescue and brought a guy in and he was really excited about that. He was watching through his binoculars. And so I did my first rescue that day. Um, early on before it got really big. Um, but a set kind of came in and and within about an hour of us being at the tower, you could see a couple bigger sets come in. And with these sets, you see guys scrambling a little bit. And then within an hour and a half to two hours, we had a huge set come in and just kind of wipe out the whole lineup. 
And that cleared almost everybody out. You know, it was that big set came in is probably like four or five waves. There's a bunch of guys in the channel with broken boards and all this stuff. So I had to go out and help some guys come in. And I had to actually rescue one guy and came in. I can tell he perked up a bit. Roger's attitude changed when the shit started to hit the fan. So he was super grumpy, not even talking to me. Um, you mean, then, you mean like once he saw the broken boards and saw people out of their element, like he got excited? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, he perked up a bit, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like, this is the, this is the stuff he loves, you know? And, and, uh, and I think he was getting a kick out of me watching me do my first rescue. And then, you know, I, I kind of got everybody in and, and no one was in the water and we put up high surf signs and tape across to keep the tourists out. And, and I got up in the tower and I said, you know, okay, well, at least we got everybody. And he goes, and he's looking out there with his binoculars and he goes, no, it ain't over yet. He gave me the binoculars and there's a kid way out to sea, about three quarters of a mile out there waving his arms. And there wasn't even a question. I was going to have to go out and get this kid, you know? You know, it was so big at that point, really closed out that um, I was kind of, I kind of got uh, butterflies, but I was also really excited at the same time. And I'd never done a big rescue like this on a board, you know, so because you have your your rescue board, which is this big 11 foot surfboard, and then you have your swim fins on and then your rescue buoy around your neck. And so you have a bunch of gear with you and, and um, you got to get out there to them. And so when I was standing there, looking at the shore break you know it's this big huge pounding shore break and i had to time it to get out past the shore break and into the ocean and uh you know i I have all my stuff with me and i i run down there and i jump on the board and i start paddling and i mistimed it and i got caught by this big set right on the shore it just blasted me up the shore i mean it was just total yard sale my swim fins my buoy the board just got blasted up the beach and i was kind of collecting all the stuff with my head down and there's all these tourists on the beach watching me and I looked up in the tower and Roger had a big smile on his face and he's pumping his fist into the air you know (laughs) and he was just so it was just a totally different guy from a couple hours ago where he was just being super grumpy you know and he was shaking his fist and he was kind of he was kind of giving me the that look at my eyes like like he's gonna make the call for me because he could see better from his vantage point. So I sat up there and I waited for him to kind of give me the call. And he, you know, when he saw, cl- he saw a clear way to get out, he just kind of pointed me to go. And then I rushed out there and, and I made it past the shore break. And it took a while to kind of weave my way out into the outer reefs. And the outer reefs are about a half a mile to three quarters of a mile out there. And, um, Luckily, I was able to get out to the kid with um, with my board and everything. I say kid because, um, you know, he filled out the we filled out paperwork later, and he, you know, he said he was 17 years old at the time. So, but he was in tr- he was definitely in trouble. He was um, drifting in a current, you know, going out to sea, you know, and he was definitely in over his head. I paddled up to him and I kind of had to fake this confidence. Like I'd done this a million times. Um, when I got to him, I was just acting like this was no big deal, you know, like, Oh, Hey, what's going on? You know? And, and, um, cause I, I, 
really just did my first rescue about an hour and a half before then, you know? So this was like my second rescue and it was much bigger surf. And so, um, I told him, I said, Hey, you got, we got to paddle you back up at sunset. Cause by now we're drifting down the coast a little bit. And so I started paddling with him holding, you know, he was holding onto the back of my paddleboard and he was kind of trying to paddle too. And I realized he was just dead weight. He couldn't paddle. He was so tired. So we got rid of his board and he jumped on the rescue board. So now we were two on the board and uh, we were in the outer reefs, you know, sunset was totally closed out. And then I, I sat up on the board and then I, it was almost like the music stopped. Like it was like the record stopped. I was like, holy shit. I just realized I've never done this before. You know, I did it an hour earlier, but it was in smaller surf and it was really close to shore. And it really started to set in, you know, I was looking towards land and all I could see was the backs of these huge waves. And, um, and I was like, okay. And I knew Roger was watching me with the binoculars, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's like this specter just up at the tower in the background the whole time. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's not even the kid I'm worried about. It's like, I got to make sure I do this for Roger. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's the, the big test, you know, and I know he's, I can almost feel him breathing down my, by my neck, you know, you know, when you, when you, do the training in lifeguard training you practice these rescues in a calm bay you know you, you, you they don't really go out and you know huge surf to do these rescues you do these practice rescues in small surf or just in flat water so there's no real um answer to how to do it you know i, I just had to figure it out <laughs> on my own you know and what i did basically is i said i told the kid i said look um you know, the board has these big handles on the front. And I said, when I say paddle, you paddle as hard as you can. But when I say stop, you got to hold on to these handles and just don't let go. And he said, you know, he said, okay. And I could tell he was scared. and But I was still trying to pretend like this is nothing, you know. So what I did is I waited for a good set to come in. And we paddled for it. And we paddled and we paddled and paddled and we were caught in it just about ready to drop. And I was almost tempted to just just ride the wave, but that could have been disastrous. So what I did is as soon as we were about to take off on it, I just dug in my legs and let the wave pass us. So we coasted down the back of the wave and then I said, start paddling again. And so we started paddling, started paddling. And I just hear this great crash behind us. And I remember having a moment where I thought that was so peculiar because in surfing, you're never in that position. And so I just said, hold on. And and he held on and I leaned back on the tail of the board to keep the nose up. And we just got swallowed up by this whitewater. And I totally wrote us off. You know, I said, there's no way we're going to come out of this with the board. We're just going to get ripped apart here. It was like being inside a rocket ship miraculously we got shot out of the wave and onto the flats and we're bouncing onto the flats and then the wave kind of gobbled us up again and then shot us out again and we just got this total hell ride all the way to the inside and uh, when we got close to the 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 sand I just pushed him into this little wave and the wave pushed him up into the crowd because there was a bunch of tourists behind uh, tape you know we had taped off the beach and he just flew up into the crowd and the whole the whole crowd cheered and everything <laughs> and, and you know it was such a great feeling you know i felt like a hero you know you i felt like i really saved this kid's life you know and and um 
I got back up in the tower and about 15 minutes later, and I looked outside and a huge outer reef wave broke right where we just were. Um, like a giant, giant wave. And um, if, if I had been, you know, 20 minutes later, we would have been out there right in, it would have been a really bad situation. So we just made it in in time. Yeah, Roger might have had to finally get out of the tower and get in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and come get me, you know. But it's funny too, you know, it's, um, it was such, it was one of the greatest feelings I ever had to be able to save somebody's life like that and, and all the training that you do and all the thought that you put into it that it actually worked out. What was Roger's reaction when you guys finally uh, washed up on the beach in front of everybody? You know, I don't really remember what his reaction was then. Um, a little while later, I was uh, I was eating lunch, and he was sitting next to me, and he's still not talking much, you know. Um, I forget the conversation. I said something, and then he he uh, he he gave me kind of a compliment that was huge for me. He said, you know, he goes, that was textbook. That was textbook, you know, and, and for me, that was like the biggest compliment I've ever had, you know, it's just like, you know, <laughs> but it was so, you know, so Roger, he just, he just qu- kind of quietly mumbled that, you know. <laughs> As a lifeguard, when you work at Pipeline, you're there all day, you're there, you know, from nine to five, basically, and you're seeing guys just pulling to closeouts and wiping out all day. The Hawaii lifeguards are some of the most incredible um, people in the world and some of the best lifesavers I've ever got to know. And, and um, being a lifeguard, you know, it's, it's definitely not, they're definitely not in it for the money, <laughs> you know. It's, it's uh, some of the most rewarding work you could ever do. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from the other side of a rescue, from a surfer whose recent wipeout on the North Shore was almost his last. We'll be right back. At the start of the episode, we heard about the world's most interesting dad, Mike Rooftop Escamilla, and how the 2020 Ford Explorers built for his and his daughter's adventurous life. But what's with that nickname? Turns out, it has to do with his early days as a BMX rider. The nickname Rooftop I've had since I've been 15. I was going on a trip to Oklahoma to a contest with all these pros. I'd never been anywhere. And like most kids who are 15 and excited, I just talked a lot. So they said if I didn't shut up, they were going to put me on the roof of the car, like the grandma from National Lampoons. And so when they started chanting Rooftop, they would just, I would start talking, and they would just be like, Rooftop. And I didn't know whether I should cry or excited they were even acknowledging me so the name stuck but so did the job in fact his first photo shoot as a bmx rider was of him jumping across you guessed it rooftops and while mike has managed to best his bmx career by becoming a hollywood stuntman he still sees the world as one big bike park bmx to me is i think the only way to describe it is it sort of defined me for a lot of years I almost feel like it's an extension of me because I've been doing it for so long. So I think everything I look at, a stairs or a street or a ledge or a building or a dirt mound, I think it pretty much is always through those two wheels that I've been rolling around on for 25 years and it is 100% shaped the way I look at everything. 
for all of life's adventures, gear up with the greatest exploration vehicle of all time, the 2020 Ford Explorer. Learn more about what it can do and meet modern-day explorers like Mike Escamilla at OutsideOnline.com explorers. Hawaii's North Shore has changed a lot since 1994, when Jeff Johnson did his first rescue at Sunset Beach. And so was surfing. There's been a huge influx of money and big-name sponsors, and organized professional competitions have become a global industry. And this summer, surfing will at last make its Olympic debut in Tokyo, over 50 years after Hawaiian surfing legend Duke Kahanamoku first pushed for its inclusion. The sport's rising popularity has brought more and more attention to the North Shore in recent decades, where, every winter, the big waves still arrive, beckoning each new generation. The swells come and go, the barrels roll along, and the wipeouts keep folks humble. This is true even for surfers that have been riding waves here their whole life. You know, the ocean is ever-changing. There's no moment where it's the same. Cole Christensen is a North Shore local and a well-known big wave surfer. He's surfed just about everywhere there's good waves since he was a kid. You get variations and, and different feelings from that experience, but the wave itself will always be different. And those who commit, you know, a lifetime to it will reap the rewards or not. This past New Year's Eve, about a mile down the beach from where Jeff Johnson saved his first life, Cole nearly lost his own. When we talked for this story, he was sitting at his farm in Kailua, recovering from emergency brain surgery. Exactly a month before our conversation, Cole and a friend had gone out to surf Pipeline, one of the world's most tantalizing waves. There's a special wave that we all know what we're looking for out there. It's a, it's, it's a big tube ride. And there's certain waves that do it, and there's a lot that don't. And I think around 9.30 or so, or 10, whenever it was, it was mid-morning, the sun started to kind of come out, the wind started filling in, and we knew it was probably cleaning up and looking better, so we, we blasted back down the pipeline, and it looked like it was starting to get good. So I jumped off, um, I paddled out, and um, it was beautiful. Um, light winds, sunny. Um, there were still some big second reef waves, um, and I was stoked. And to get a great wave at Pipeline is um, something that takes a lifetime, unless you get super lucky. Um, there's a pecking order in the crowd. There's only so many good ones. And it, it's only good, you know, really good a handful of times a year, maybe a couple handfuls of times a year, depending on the year. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lifelong relationship. Pipeline's majesty comes from the fact that the things that make it a perfect wave are the same things that make it so difficult. Weather conditions need to be just so. You need to be in the right spot at the right moment. And the reefs are ever-present, looming just beneath the surface. So it's just a combination of being in the right spot in the water, um, being lucky, um, or just being in that moment and having that wave come to you. And um, it just all kind of just 
harmoniously working out for you. In some areas around Pipeline, the water's only a few feet deep when it meets the reef, which means if you wipe out in the wrong spot, a wave is pounding you straight into jagged coral. So the heavier the swell, the heavier the consequences. I was talking to my buddy Kalani Chapman um, right before this set came. Uh, Kalani Chapman, I think it was two years ago, um, also hit his head and drowned and was rescued by the lifeguards and um, revived on the beach. Um, so it was, it was interesting that I was sitting there talking to Kalani right before I caught this wave. And this wave came and it wasn't, it was an okay wave, but I could catch it from the outside and ride it through. It wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to be a um, lifetime wave or, or one of the ones I was really looking for, but it was more of like a, a good warm up, you know, I get my feet on the board. I rode it in to the inside and it kind of walled out and I felt like I could pull into the tube and, and go for a while and then, you know, whatever. It wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't the best one. In a video taken from that day, you can see Cole drop in. And then almost the moment after he locks into the tube, the wave stretches out ahead of him and closes out. He pumps his board to move faster, but the wave swallows him up. And I fell and I feel like I just went straight to the bottom. And the way the wave broke, it kind of pulled back to the, a really shallow part of the reef right between pipeline and back door. So we're talking like, you know, feet deep right there. Um, the last thing I remember was pulling into that tube. And the next thing I remember was laying on the flat board with an oxygen mask looking up at the um, North Shore lifeguards. The wave had thrown Cole headfirst into the reef knocking him out and gashing his head open. After being pulled out of the water and stabilized by the lifeguards, Cole was rushed to the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. The trauma doctors found that Cole had a fractured skull and an epidural hematoma, meaning that he was bleeding in between his skull and his brain. In some medical circles, that's known as a talk and die, named after a patient that could be talking and acting normally until suddenly the bleeding becomes fatal. After the hospital staff notified his wife, herself a doctor at a different hospital, Cole was rushed into surgery. You've seen the movie Hannibal, where they cut the guy's skull off. I didn't know this until the post-op appointment, I think out of protection um, of myself. <laughs> but he, they, he, he told me and showed me pictures of what they did, but it was the size of like a large egg or a baseball. Um, that he cut around the circumference of the spiderweb fracture and removed the whole plate, the circular plate of my skull, um, cleaned out all the blood, sutured up the dura, later, the dura layer that was torn, and then replaced the plate and butterflied it in with um, five or six metal plates on the outside with little screws and then put plates on some of the larger fractures on the inside. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was kind of blown away. I'm glad I didn't know what he did until three weeks later. So now you've been in recovery for about a month. Uh, it seems like it's going well. 
what's that been like these past few weeks? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, a lot of a lot of the immediate questions were, will I ever surf pipeline again? Do I want to keep surfing big waves? Or, you know, those things kind of have run in and out of my head. And I feel oddly at peace with myself right now and 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 the surf and and you know I I'm just gonna take it day by day I don't think there's I don't think I need to answer that question to myself right now um, I feel happy I feel um, the power of being present with my my daughters and my family and um, the waves by the way have been going off um, pipeline has been good um, again and usually I would feel um, what do we call it we call it FOMO nowadays I would feel a strong sense of FOMO but I just kind of I'm just kind of laughing and I, I just feel like this I almost feel like I'm buzzing and um, just being just being present and being alive and, and being able to spend this bonus time with uh, my daughters that I might not have been here for. Being a committed big wave surfer like Cole means that you know just how bad it could have been. In 2011, Cole's friend Sion Malowski drowned after a wipeout at Mavericks in California. According to a surfer that was there that day with him, a large wave that Sion was riding closed out on top of him, pushing him below the water, only to be held under by a second wave that crashed right after. His body was eventually recovered almost a mile from where it happened. It was a sobering incident among the community, and it led Cole and his friend and fellow surfer Danilo Koto to a simple realization that, as surfers, they were not professional lifesavers, but always found themselves in situations that might need life-saving. That didn't make sense. They should have the skills to perform the basic rescues they needed to. Um, so we started with a CPR class in, in my barn, and then we sought out our mentor um, and one of the most, if not the most highly qualified um, lifeguard waterman in the world, Brian Kiolana, on the west side in Makaha and asked him if he would share his knowledge with us and teach us how to rescue using jet skis, without jet skis, just be, just teach us. Brian Kiulana agreed to teach them what he knew, with one caveat, that he keep sharing his knowledge forward to everyone they could. And they did. Over the next couple of years, their efforts evolved into an organization called the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group dedicated to educating and training surfers about the risks they take and how to be safe while doing them. And eventually, as they gave more and more presentations around the world, the goal to have more people in the water that could save a life became real. But personally, for Cole, it wasn't until his fateful day at Pipeline that everything came full circle. So back up about um, to the moment I was paddling out, jumping off the jet ski, um, Andrew Del Greco, another North Shore lifeguard, came down on the jet ski to check the waves. Um, he was supposed to be at Waimea, but he just kind of had this feeling like he wanted to come down because if there was anything going to go down that morning, he felt like it was going to be at Pipeline. 
Cole and Andrew said hi to each other before Cole paddled into the wave. And when Andrew saw Cole wipe out, he rushed in on his jet ski and saw Cole floating face down. He um, recognized the fact that I needed some oxygen, so he jumped off the jet ski, um, lifted my head out of the water, and started yelling my name. And as he was doing that, I took a breath. Now, if he had not jumped off the ski um, and got my head out of the water, I would probably have been in a, or I would have been in a CPR situation along with my fractured skull, which um, would have increased the odds for a lot of complications. So um, it was a heroic and uh, maneuver by Andrew, and it was pretty rad. I got to see him um, at our baby loa. We had our first baby loa for my youngest daughter last weekend, and he came, and it was pretty, pretty powerful. I, I haven't ever been on the um, rescuee side of uh, rescue, and until you're there, it's it's hard to um, to put into words the the grasp of the uh, of the magnitude of the appreciation and, and feelings that and emotions that come out, um, knowing that you would not be here today if it was not for this other person rescuing you. I think being on the rescuee side and is different than being on the rescuer side. And I had never felt this way. I had met a lot of the people that had been rescued and you can see it in their eyes, you can even see their appreciation. But until you're there, um, you can't really quantify it or, or put it in words. So um, feeling different, I um, am really excited about the years to come and, and how I can help um, spread the um, spread the knowledge and save more lives. It's a funny thing, the cycle that risk goes through with sports like this. People push the boundaries of what's considered possible, which leads to the evolution of better equipment and safer techniques. And then once people get comfortable with the better equipment and the safer techniques, they keep on pushing boundaries. And the cycle repeats wave after wave. So while Cole's response to his friend's death years ago might have felt small at the time, just doing a CPR class in his barn, it just might have caused a ripple that became a lifetime wave at Pipeline. The Big Wave Risk Assessment Group is holding summits around the world at several locations this year. You can see the full schedule and register online at bwrag.com. This episode was produced by Alex Ward and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. Additional music by Holy Coast. This episode was brought to you by the 2020 Ford Explorer. Learn more about what it can do and meet modern-day explorers like Mike Escamilla at outsideonline.com slash explorers. We'll be back next week.